formality in a service were not enough. We are not going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. I went to sleep last night, you see, thinking we would be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning. But we will not be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. I won't repeat all of the goals for 2020 that we have for our congregation, but I do want to just point out one thing, one of the goals, which is that we would commit to reading, to Bible reading and prayer every day. To that end, we have created three different Bible reading plans that you may choose from uh, based on any number of factors, uh, but we wanted to give you a resource to help you. This, so. There are three different ones, three different colors. They will be on uh, one of the desks out there in boxes right after the service. The three are, one is a standard uh, through the Bible reading plan, so you would read all of the Bible, some from the Old and New Testament each day. The second one is a story of the Bible reading plan, so it follows more, uh, the larger readings are more the narrative of the story, and it has a few verses uh, that complement or explain or other places where that part of the God's story is referred to in other parts of the Bible. This is this yellow one through the Bible. This is basically four chapters a day, all right? Uh, this story of the Bible is basically less than three but more than two chapters a day, all right? And then there's the New Testament Bible reading plan, which is essentially one chapter per day. If you do that on the weekdays through the year, just as a helpful hint, you will read all the way through the New Testament in a year. Now, what's different about all these reading plans is this. On Saturday, you have listed the sermon text for the next day. So, all the way through 2020 minus, you know, things like the missions conference and a couple of open uh, Sundays that haven't been planned yet. Uh, all of the series for next year are planned, and all of the texts are written on Saturdays so that you can read and meditate on that in preparation for Sunday morning. Behind that Bible reading plan in all of these is first a membership role, and then some general ways that you can pray for other Christians, even if you don't know them, all right? So, the, and we've given those same things out in, in, uh, previously but uh, so you can choose one of these. If you've never read through any portion of the Bible completely, um, well, this is, you know, it's a good time to start. Just start with uh, the green one, which is the New Testament. So this is one chapter a day. It's a good place to start. Uh, if you want to get a grip on the story of the Bible, the bigger picture, do that one. And uh, uh, if you want to do the, the whole of the Bible, there's that for you. All right? So I just wanted to mention those. Um, I, I'm actually not certain how, at this point, we will finish the Second Corinthians series because I do plan an entire year ahead, and the first Sunday in January is not open. Uh, we don't have an open, unplanned uh, Sunday till like the end of May. So, um, so anyway, so well, we'll figure it out. This is what I do. You just go about your business this week, and I'll figure out how we're going to finish Second Corinthians. The reason why we're doing this is I feel like this is a shepherding moment for us all, that in addition to praying, we ought to be thinking correctly. 
that in essence, the phrases that have gone through my mind this morning are, are that in something like what we've done this morning, the tears of the world have met the truth of eternity. Tears over leukemia, tears over the sudden loss of Steve Austin, tears over chronic pain and suffering, tears over watching a loved one suffer and caring for them. By the way, Adam is not the only person you should keep an eye on. In fact, from my experience in hospice care, it is those who are around the person who often suffer more than the person themselves, struggle more, ask more questions, have more doubts, wonder more. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on joy. Keep your eyes on their three precious sons. Keep your eyes on Rod and Angie. Keep your eyes on Aaron and Jessica, his wife. Keep your eyes on his other siblings as they come and as they go. But the tears over all these things meets the truth of eternity, doesn't it? The truth, the wondrous mystery of Jesus Christ coming and living and suffering and dying, not being held by the grave, but conquering it in resurrection. All to glorify God by forgiving us and saving us so that we can escape the greatest suffering that exists, which is eternal punishment in hell. But the death and resurrection of Jesus doesn't just promise us a particular kind of future. It does promise us a particular kind of present. Not a present marked by painless circumstances, but a present marked by hope. Because of Jesus, we have hope in the midst of our living and our suffering and our dying. The tears of the world meet the truth of eternity. And this is not a new experience. It was Asaph's experience 3,000 years ago. His faith is shaken because of suffering, because of injustice. And his struggle is recorded here in Psalm 73. I'm going to read the totality of the psalm. This is what the Spirit says. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, His people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean, 
and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the children of your generation. And when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Father, help us to see and love and believe and live according to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. This psalm begins and ends with faith, bookends of faith, if you will. At the very beginning, he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, a statement of faith. He ends, though, For me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. It's holding the psalm together, if you will, because in between those two bookends, the psalmist almost falls apart. The struggle is intense. And because of that, and because it is so relevant to our lives, isn't it? I was reading that, but you heard some of your own life in there, didn't you? And because it is so acutely relevant, even now, it is good that we would go here and be encouraged by the Lord through His Word. Asaph's journey teaches us and warns us and reminds us and helps us to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's what he's fighting to do here. Walk by faith, not by sight. Just two headings, two things that we see happening in Asaph's life. First, his faith is shaken, and then his faith is strengthened. His faith is shaken, and then his faith is strengthened. So his faith is shaken. I mean, Asaph's like any other believer. Did you notice that? He goes to church regularly. I mean, if this is the Asaph that was contemporary with David, he's leading worship. He's on the keyboard every Sunday. He's leading God's people in praise. He's there. He even comes to Sunday night prayer meeting. He goes and visits shut-in and sings carols with them and has communion with them. I mean, this guy is active in his church family. 
He's not wandering off in the weeds somewhere. He is right in the thick of things. He is in the heart of the community of God. If you bumped into him in the foyer after church, you ask him how he's doing, he'd say, I'm doing fine. No, 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 how are you really doing? I'm doing fine. But in verse 2, he pulls back from all this fineness, from his statement of faith. He peels back the curtain. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I mean, he's almost walked away from the Lord here. How? What was happening? For I, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. His faith is shaken by two things. First of all, by what he sees in the world. This prosperity of the wicked. The prosperity here is the word shalom. It's, it's much more than just an absence of conflict. I mean, this is when everything's right in the world. Everything's, go, you know, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's shalom. All right? That's what this word is. And he goes on to talk about the prosperity of the wicked from verses 4 to 12. Some of it's an exaggeration. I mean, nobody, if you sit down and nail them down, nobody actually thinks that the wicked never suffer. But that sure is what's filling his mind, isn't it? Nobody's suffering. This sounds a little bit like Elijah, right? Lord, I'm all by myself here. There's nobody else faithful. Nobody else, Asaph says, is suffering like I'm suffering. All these wicked folk are getting along fine. They're fat and sleek. They're not worrying about meals. They get gleaming reports from their doctor. Their bank account is full and it's getting fuller. They're listened to. Did you notice that? Look at verse 11. Or verse 10, sorry. Even God's people turn back to them and find no fault in them. I mean, the wicked even have some kind of sway over the church. Now, if, I, if that was all I was going to talk about, we could find a lot of that in our society today, couldn't we? The church turning to people who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and basically sucking up every word they say and taking it as if it were gospel. Because, hey, he's, he or she is the right politician. So I have unabashed, unchanging, unwavering allegiance to so-and-so. Basically, I mean, these wicked folks that he's talking about, they're writing books about life, about how to deal with things. And the church is like, I am totally into this. This is what I need. And Asaph's looking at it all. He's like, am I the only person who sees this? Am I the only person who is suffering? Like, why is it that all the good people are suffering? Why, why is it, Karen? Why is it, right? Why is it that hardship lands right on the doorstep and in the living room of those who sell everything and go to the other side of the world to serve Jesus. And the people who are going over there to make money, they're fine. 
Isn't that what it feels like? It's what Asaph feels like. They don't have any real pain. They use others to get what they want. Right? That's what he says. They oppress. They set their mouths against the heaven. They speak against God. Their tongue struts through the earth. What a picture. A proud tongue going wherever it wants, saying whatever it wants. And people are just soaking it up. And here's this conclusion. Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. His faith is shaken because of what he sees in the world. But his faith is also shaken because of what he sees in himself. Do you notice that? He changes gears right here. The very next turn of phrase. He says, look at all the wicked. They are fat and sleek. They are at ease. They are increasing in riches. And then he turns the mic on his own life and he says, it's like I've lived for God for nothing. That's what he says. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Oh, friends, that, that resides in the back of the mind of so many believers. This idea that God, who created all things, who does everything in here, somehow also works on a kind of Christianized karma orientation where if I serve Him and I live for Him and I am doing for Him and I am seeking to glorify Him in my marriage and in my parenting and in my workplace and in my church and I am sharing the gospel and I am giving to missions and I am going on missions and I am doing anything and everything I can for the Lord Jesus, if I am doing that, it's just, why is this even happening to me then? That's what's in the back of many people's minds, isn't it? And what starts in the back of people's minds often just comes out of their mouths. Steve Austin's impacting men's lives day in, day out, week in, week out. This I mean, listen to his words. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is, this is what I get. This is what I get. If, if I had said, I will speak thus. You remember what they did when the wicked speak. They all follow after them. But if I say it, I just, nobody listens. I just, it's like I'm betraying every, every generation of you, Lord. He's keeping his heart clean before the Lord. He's washing his hands of evil practices. And what is the great reward at the end of the day? Suffering. Do you feel his sense of injustice here? The bad guys are getting away with everything. They're mocking God. Their careers are taking off. 
They've got all the influence. And here I am getting this. It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon, as I said. And Christians find themselves saying these very kinds of things. Maybe you have thought or said these kinds of things. I want to encourage you, the psalm does not end here. There is no value in just complaining about what seems wrong. There is no value in venting. If you are going to coffee with your friend... It is not a good thing if you or your friend basically spews everything you don't like and every complaint that you have, and then you kind of say, all right, good talk, and we leave. There is nothing holy in that conversation. Yes, we ought to be honest and transparent with one another so that we can bear one another's burdens, so that we can speak into one another's lives, but simply the bearing of the soul with no medicinal application of the Scriptures is just like walking around with an open wound saying, look at that. I mean, you imagine walking around the ER, look at this, look at this. I remember we're coming up on a year since Susan broke her ankle. I remember when we were in the ER, we're sitting in one of these rooms that are very small and yet not comfortable. Um, but you're in this room and the nurses come and look at it and one nurse leaves to go get another nurse. You have to come see this. Come in. Have you ever seen it look like that before? Whenever medical professionals start to go get other medical professionals to come see something that they've never seen before, it's not good. I mean, that's... That's just not good. Whoa, I've never faced this before. Uh, that's not good. All right, so, but that's what venting is. Hey, everybody, come over here and just look at it. You go to the doctor's, just look at it. I don't want you to actually do anything about it, but he's such a good doctor, he's such a good listener, but he did nothing to fix my foot. And yet, when it comes to the issues of life and the issues of the soul, we would never do that with our doctor, but we do it all the time with the issues of the soul. If I could just, look, I'm just venting. I'm not looking for a solution here. I'm not looking for you to encourage me or to pray with me. I just want you to listen, okay? Just say you'll pray later. Boy, that counselor is such a good listener. Such a good listener. The psalm doesn't end here, friends. Asaph doesn't just vent. Asaph exposes all of these conflicted thoughts so he can show us how his faith was strengthened in the midst of it. That's the second thing. How is his faith strengthened? His faith is shaken. Now his faith is strengthened. He doesn't actually... Uh, there's a couple things that actually don't strengthen his faith. He doesn't ask and answer the why do bad things happen, you know, why do bad things happen to good people or why do good things happen to bad people. He doesn't ask and answer that question. Also, what doesn't strengthen his faith here 
is a change in his circumstances. Nothing changes. But yet his faith is strengthened. How does that happen? Four things very quickly. First, by the community of believers. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. You see, he was thinking unclearly about the issues of life, about the issues of the prosperity of the wicked, about the seeming absence of suffering in their lives. And he goes to the sanctuary of God, and things are set right. And you can just see him there. It's a wearisome task. He's got bags under his eyes. He's wasting away because he forgot to eat. He's just torturing himself trying to figure this thing out, and he can't do it on his own. It's why he needs the people of God. Friends, in our day, in an attempt, which is a right attempt, to not link God's grace in our lives with church attendance or church membership as if those things merit something before God or as if they earn something, in our right attempt to do that, we have swung the pendulum hard the other way to where people are basically saying, hey, it's good if you can get there, but if not, no big deal. God's not keeping attendance. Well, that's true. But what is it that is God's method of accomplishing His work? How is it that God is going to reach the world? How is it that God is going to strengthen and sustain and grow and help us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? His ordained method is... Look to your left. Go ahead, look to your left. You're allowed to do it. We're not Pentecostal, but you can look to your left. And look to the right. These folks right here. Your church family is the method that God has. And every church family is meant to be the method that God has. God certainly works through big events and things that are outside the church. God works through, uh, mercifully works through things like parachurch organizations. Uh, Works through critical moments. But the most often... The, the, the center of God's attention in working in the world is the church. Through the routine rhythm of worship, the routine relationships, this is where God's at work. And that's where God intervenes for Asaph. The secondly, He intervenes by His truth. Okay, Not just in the community. It's not just getting together that does it. It's getting together and hearing the truth. Okay, So look at verses 16, uh, sorry, verses 18 to 20. Truly you, speaking of the wicked, uh, God set them, that's the wicked, truly God sets the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And we don't know how it happened in the gathering of God's people, whether it was a phrase in a song or something the, the, the teacher said that day or in a personal conversation with others. But what we do know is that he was reminded, he discerned their end. There's no arrogance here. It's just a remembrance of what is true. Those who ignore God, who deny God, who 
the godless, the wicked, justice will come. They will face God and He will be their judge. And a life, good life in this world is no indication of a good outcome on that day. You see, while Asaph may be slipping, the wicked will slip. That's the difference. He says they'll slip into ruin, destroyed in a moment. They're swept away by terrors. The the memory of them disappears like a dream after you wake up. Friend, if you're here and you're living a life that denies God, maybe you're using your, your life as evidence against God because a loving God wouldn't let you suffer like this. Maybe you're simply not wanting to surrender your way to His. Whatever the case, the Bible is clear that we have all sinned and rebelled against the Lord. And that the one who created us will have the last word in evaluating us. And the gavel will fall and His sentence will be final and all who refuse to repent and believe in Jesus will face hell. But all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ will find that God's gavel still has fallen, but it fell and their sentence was passed on Jesus. And Jesus has served the sentence in our place. He slipped into it so we will never slip. And if that's you, today is the day of salvation. Don't go home and think about it. Don't complicate. That is as simple as it gets. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have no hope beyond your death. You have no hope until your death. We have no hope. We are without God and without hope in the world when we are apart from Jesus Christ. Why would you want to live your life without hope? Why would you want to live your life thinking, hoping in the wishing way that you will somehow merit God's favor in the end? How good is good enough, friend? You simply can't be good enough. No one is righteous. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And that excludes All of us. Jesus is the one with clean hands and a pure heart. He ascended a hill to die so that we could ascend the hill of the Lord and live. I would love to talk to you more about that. You can go to anyone in this room and talk more about what it means to come to know Jesus Christ. But we press on. He comes... He is, his faith is strengthened by the community, by the truth. Third, he's actually strengthened by his own repentance. Did you see how he responded to the truth? Verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. What does he say? What happened in that moment? Look at this confession. I was brutish and ignorant. The worship leader was a fool. That's what he's saying. I was like a beast toward you. He turns from wrong thinking, the way he was seeing the world, the way he saw his own life, the way he was growing bitter. But he doesn't just stop there. He replaces those 
thoughts that he was having with new thoughts. Verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, what is true? What is true of the one suffering? What is true of the one who has injustice in this world? What is true of you right now, no matter what circumstance you're in? What is true of you, Adam, and you, Joy? What is true? I am continually with you. I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't somehow gotten out of the hand of God. Nothing can snatch you out of the Lord's hand. That's what Jesus said. And what else does He do? You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, what will happen? After all of this suffering, after it seems to go so well for the wicked, what will happen to me in the end, Lord? Afterward, you receive me to glory. In terms that all of you who have done the right thing in taking the counseling classes, he put off wrong thinking. And he put on right thinking. He was brutish and a beast. And now he has hope because he repented of the way he was thinking. Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any thing worthy of praise, think about these things. Friends, when we're in the midst of suffering and we think about anything else, we are brutish and beasts. He's strengthened by the community, by the truth, by his repentance, and finally by a fresh passion for God. You see the evidence of this strength and faith, don't you? Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, these things cannot be separated. He's not just going to get a fresh passion of God just boom out of nowhere. Do you know what happened? He went to church. He heard the truth. He repented, and God blessed it in freshness. That's quite something, isn't it? That is quite something. But nothing has changed in his world. The wicked are still prospering. They're still fat and sleek. The world has not gone anywhere, but everything about Asaph has changed. The world hasn't been given a spiritual makeover. Asaph has. Now, instead of wanting what the wicked have, his heart wants something else, doesn't it? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Do you hear the change? Verse 3, he was envious of the wicked. And here, there is, I, there is nothing they have that I want. In fact, the thing I want is something they will never get so long as they stay where they're at. In the beginning, you might imagine Asaph saying something like, Yeah, you know, I've got you, Lord, and heaven, and that's really great and everything, but what I really want is something here and now. That's Asaph at the beginning. Asaph at the end 
I have you. I have heaven. Where else can I go? What's better than you? There is nothing this earth provides that's better than you. His struggle is probably not going to go away. He'll still be stricken. He'll still be rebuked. People will still follow the advice of the wicked. The culture is not going to change. His body may give out. He'll probably still wrestle with doubts in the future. His faith will be shaken again. But in faith, he knows God is enough. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Boy, you guys better write that on a card and just keep it right in front of you. And you guys better write that on a card and keep that in front of you. And you guys better keep that on a card and keep it in front of you. And y'all better write it on a card and keep it in front of you. And y'all better write it on a card and keep it in front of you. And y'all better write it on a card and keep it in front of you. My heart and my flesh may fail. He doesn't mean ultimately. Ultimately, his flesh will fail. He just means like right now. It may happen sooner rather than later. But God is the strength of your heart. God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. Many of us have shed tears for our friend today. I've struggled to sing, and when I breathe my final breath, I'll have no need to fear that rest. It's just overwhelming. This hope will guide me into death. We've shed tears over others in recent days. We've shed, we've shed tears over pains around the world. And so long as we're in this sin-cursed world, there are more tears to come. Tears over suffering, tears over loss, tears over pain, tears over sin against us, tears over the sin in us, tears in this world. But God has spoken and His words are sufficient. And His words through Asaph and through all the biblical writers speak to us in our tears to lift our drooping chin, to steady our slipping feet, and to turn our eyes to the truth of eternity. And one day, friends, God will finish all of it. And we will stand before Him, and I just want you to imagine we will stand before Him with the tears of the world still staining our cheeks, and He promises that on that day, do you know what He will do? He will wipe them all away forever. But until then, we fight to walk by faith, not by sight as the tears of this world meets the truth of eternity. Let's pray together.